You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. But on that note, I want to tell you a sad story. Because nothing is better on a beautiful Sunday than a sad story. All right, and it's sad. It's sad for a lot of reasons, and it's in our Bibles. And so Mark chapter 10, let's get in it. Verse 17, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good but one, God. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. Then looking at him, read this with me. Jesus loved him and said to him. Mark puts that in for a purpose, so keep that in mind. Let's all read the rest of this together. You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was stunned at this demand. It wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't meant to be over-spiritualized. Mark tells us it was a demand. And he went away grieving because he had many possessions. This is a heartbreaking story of a young man who came to the right person at the right time to ask the right question, received the right answer, and made the wrong decision. It's the only time in the Gospel of Mark that a person receives an invitation to follow Jesus and chooses not to. That's significant. It's the only person in the Gospel of Mark who chose not to follow Jesus when receiving the invitation to do so. So not only does this story offer a sad realism, it demonstrates the special power possessions often have over discipleship. There's a, a, a distinct contrast between what's going on here and what happened just a few verses above this particular text. A few verses above this particular text, you hear of an uncalculated childlike faith. Children welcoming the kingdom of God. Here you see a calculated decision to not. Above this text, you read about children who have no position, power, or privilege in their society. And in this text, you read about a man who Luke tells us is a ruler of the synagogues. So he was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. This is where we get the rich young ruler idea from who is overwhelmed with power, position, and privilege. Jesus' response to the rich young ruler's flattering title is to test the sincerity. Good teacher. And so Jesus calls him to do the Ten Commandments. And the man very sincerely responds. He responds that he's kept them. And it grabs Jesus' attention, it seems. And Jesus, Mark tells us, looked at him and loved him. It's important that you understand this man is not a bad man. 
This man that doesn't deserve to be fit in our categories of greed, greedy and selfish and prideful. That is oversimplifying this man. This man is a good man. This man is a man that Jesus actually, that Jesus loves. And, and we know that God loves everybody, et cetera, et cetera. I get all that. But this particular text, Mark wants us to know with no uncertainty that Jesus loved this guy. That there was something different about this guy. Jesus was sad by this guy's response. And Jesus' next response falls on this rich young ruler's life like a hammer. It consists of five obligations. Say five obligations. The five obligations that Jesus gives this man is to go, sell, give, come, and follow. And in this series of five obligations, Jesus interrupts the obligations with a promise. Which is important, because God doesn't call us to something without helping us see what the purpose of that something is. Jesus is calling him and he says, go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come, follow me. In these five obligations, Jesus is teaching the rich young ruler how to embrace a life of generosity, how to embrace a life of discipleship, to go, to sell, to give, to come, to follow. And it's clear that God is calling this guy to leverage his power, his position, and his privilege for the good of others. And it's like Jesus is saying, get rid of the things that can distract you from following me just get rid of them. And for this man who'd never followed Jesus, unfortunately for him, this was a prerequisite. In the text, it's a prereq. Go, sell, give, then come follow. It's like Jesus knew that this man was not going to be able to follow if this position, power, and privilege was still given that much weight in his life. It was like Jesus knew that this rich young ruler needed to understand that you cannot take hold of the abundant life Jesus offers if your grip is locked on something else. I mean, you literally can't do it. I mean, you have two hands. If your two hands are tight and if they're gripped to something and God wants to hand you, if I wanted to hand you something but you're clinging to something else with both hands, you can't take it. I can, I can put it on your shoulder and you've got to balance it, but it's going to fall. Right? Like I can, we can set it in your lap, but at some point you're going to move and it's going to fall. You can't hold it. And it's like Jesus knows. Jesus knows that this man, if his grip is locked to other things, he can't take hold of, take hold of the abundant life he offers. And for disciples who hear, who hear this text later, like us, this isn't a prerequisite for us, but it may come as a consequence for us. Because the reality remains the same. To take hold of the life that Jesus offers us, an abundant, meaningful, and beautiful, and purposeful life, requires both hands. And we can't do that if we're clinging to career, if we're clinging to possessions, if we're clinging even to spouse, if we're clinging to degree, if we're clinging to friendship, if we're clinging to betrayal, if we're clinging to anything. 
if we're clinging to our own sense of security. See, what happens is generosity. Generosity is a practice of trust and submission that opens the heart and hand to receive what God is offering. And I think that's why Jesus calls them to go sell and give. I want you to go sell and give because if you can go sell and give, the things you own do not own you. If you can go sell and give, then you can open your hands and you can receive. It's kind of hard to receive new things when our suitcases are so full. And see, life and community is the household of God. And I'm using the word household of God because it's Paul language, it's Bible language. And I, I like the language, it's family language. The household of God, it's a call to generosity. Together we share burdens, both one another and others. Together we're committed to cultivating a common life, grounded in truth, guided in truth, grounded in love, guarded by mutual submission, given to gracious hospitality. This is a call to life together. I mean, there's like 50-something one another commands in the New Testament for the people of God. We can't live in the one another commands if we're not generous with our lives. I'm not just talking about our pocketbooks. I'm talking our time, our, our space, our presence, the best we can. And, and the reality of it is we can't just have one person generous among us. We have to be generous to one another in all of these things. Because that's the difference between church affiliation and church participation. See, there's a difference. Jesus did not want him to affiliate with him. Jesus wanted the rich young ruler to participate with him. That's an entirely different kind of life. So he says, go sell all you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Trust the investments you're making by trusting me. See, in our text, the rich young ruler has to make a decision. Will he hide or will he seek? Clearly, he was seeking, but his seeking set off another exploration that required more seeking. And he chose to hide instead. See, the reality of it is, if you're here today, you're here, whether it's because your spouse invited you or you felt like you had to come or your friends come. Look, I see the world through a lens that says that if you're here and God is at work and you're here because you need to be here. Of all the Sundays you came, this was the Sunday. You don't have to believe that. I don't want to persuade you, and that's how I see the world. And so then I have to believe, as I look out and I see us, I have to believe that you're seeking something too. And at the end of the day, we all know what we're seeking. We all know what our lives are like when we lay our heads down on our pillow at night. We all know the ache we feel. We all know that that career didn't quite fill the hole. We all know that that spouse didn't quite fill the hole. And so what we do is we start thinking a new career can do it, or maybe even a new spouse can do it, or maybe a new degree can do it, or maybe a different friend can do it. And so we start pursuing those things. And that's not generosity, that's taking. And see, that's the opposite. That's clinging even more tightly to these notions that seduce us away from the abundant life Jesus offers. And the thing is, I can't blame this guy. Like, I don't blame this guy for not wanting to do any of this stuff. I mean, I would imagine driving the Mercedes chariot was more ideal than Ubering a camel. I bet 
that having a Rolex sundial was much fancier than all the other little sundials everybody else was wearing or carrying around or didn't. And getting new Birkenstock sandals was the way to go. Matter of fact, less extravagantly speaking, I think it is much better to have you know enough food, right, than to not have enough. I think it's probably very nice to have the resources to put back for the kids' education. I don't blame this guy at all. I identify with this man. And he's a faithful man, too. He's a faithful man. He's not a greedy man. Remember, Mark reminds us he's sincere. He's sincere and he's faithful to the law. Jesus didn't say, no, no, you blew it on one of the Ten Commands. Jesus doesn't argue with him. This dude is faithful to what God has called him to. This guy looks like the model guy. And he's a leader in the synagogue, which means he's got to be a tither. And this guy's a tither, right? Like, there's a, he's not weak on law. So don't categorize him as some greedy guy. That's, that's, that's not right. I don't think that's only as appropriate to the story. He was just comfortable. And what he didn't realize is what we often don't realize. Is that his comfortability is what led him to vulnerability. When we're comfortable, we're vulnerable. And I know that's the opposite of what we think. Because, I mean, to be comfortable means we have enough, right? Like, no doubt there's truth to that. But the problem with being comfortable is we easily become seduced into believing that when we're comfortable, we're somehow less vulnerable. As if risk and anxiety doesn't get us when we're comfortable. I mean, when the pantry's full, we are less vulnerable to starvation. When there's money in the savings account, we are less vulnerable to not being able to pay our mortgage if a crisis happens. And in that way, we're right. But the question is, does that still mean we're not vulnerable? Does that really mean we're safe? Does it mean that we're less vulnerable to anxiety and risk? It only means that if we somehow believe that comfortability is the life we're called to and that somehow that kind of life that will never really cost us anything on purpose is the kind of life that leads to a meaningful life an abundant life, and then a beautiful life. See, because at the end of the day, apparently the rich young ruler believed that a life of comfort, as he understood it, was more meaningful, more abundant, and more purposeful than the life that Jesus was calling him to receive. And so he left grieving. And I wonder if we often fail to see what he failed to see, is that comfortability leads to vulnerability, and it makes us vulnerable to a life that is actually less meaningful less abundant and less purposeful and less beautiful than the life that Christ actually offers. And just as Jesus looked at him and loved him, he looks at you and loves you too. And it's because he loved that man that Jesus called him to a life of generosity. And it's because he loves us that he calls us to the same. Maybe this is why Paul, when writing his young pastor, Timothy, who is starting this church in this new place, when he wrote his first letter, he closed the letter this way. If you'll listen, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, he said, Instruct those who are rich 
in the present age, not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Here's what I want to be clear on. Wealth isn't bad. It just didn't. Matter of fact, everything that we have, God gives us so we can enjoy. So don't feel guilty because you drive a Mercedes chariot. Don't feel guilty because you wear Rolex sundials. That's not where this is headed. That's not what this is even about. Matter of fact, God blesses us with these things so we can enjoy them. We have more than one. Raise your hand if you have more than one shirt in your closet. You're doing better than the two-thirds world. You know this, right? Raise your hand if you have food in the refrigerator and in the pantry. Raise your hand. Come on, raise your hand high. You're doing better than two-thirds world. So when we read this text, do me a favor, please, and let's do each other a favor. Let's not not see all of us in this text. We're all rich. Just rich in different ways. And I know that practically speaking, in terms of American vocabulary and metrics and measures, some more than others, but at the end of the day, I mean, we all look pretty well dressed. You know, most of us. Just, just kidding, just kidding. Nah. No, I mean, we, we all look well fed. I mean, we are, we're comfortable. We're sitting here, comfortable chairs. This is us. So don't feel guilty about this. Wealth is not bad. But that's not what it means to be rich in light of the realities of Christ. And that's where we get seduced. See, because the rest of the text is there. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works. To be what? What else? Storing up for themselves a good reserve for the age to come. Now, read this with me, because this is like mind-blowing stuff when you listen to the language. So that they may take hold of life that is real. Like, think about that. Like, you want real life? Then, then, then embrace generosity. Go sell gift, come follow. That's real life. And there's nothing about society that tells us that's real life. You watch the TV commercial and you see Matthew McConaughey driving the Escalade. Like, the handsomest man alive. Kind of. Like one of them, him and Denzel. It's hard for me to determine. If it was Denzel, I would say the same. Look, but Matthew McConaughey is like, he's, he's, he's Matthew McConaughey. Like, he's, he's my doppelganger, right? Like, he's... He's driving an Escalade, and he's driving, and when you see him drive the Escalade, is it an Escalade? See, I don't even know, but it's a fancy black car, and he's wearing a tux, and he's, you know, doing this thing that he's doing, you know, like, like, like I've said, like rolling a book or whatever, and he's, and he's, and he's driving, and he's like, he's like, yeah, your life is like life, man. Like, he's saying this stuff that means nothing, but we're like, we think somehow that that's where life is, and, and everything about society tells us that that's real life. That like it's real life if you're married at this age and you have babies at this age. Anything other than that's not real life. Or like it's real life if you have this degree and this job. Like that's real life. And that's not real life. Not for the Christian. And I don't want any of us to walk away grieved. Nor surprised when Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you got to go sell gift. Because generosity becomes the practice that opens our hands. So that we can take hold of a life that is real. A life that is meaningful and purposeful and beautiful. There have been times in my life where I have struggled to believe. I've struggled to believe that God is God. I've struggled to believe that Jesus raised from the dead. I've struggled to believe that God would reveal himself in another person named Jesus. 
There are times in my life where I've struggled to believe because I would think myself out of it. And there are times in my life where I held one too many dead bodies in my arms or sat beside too many people who died too early or saw too many tragedies happen. And I was one too many times that I walked away thinking that this really can't be it. There's no way that the God of heaven and earth would do this or at least let this happen. And there have been times where I was wanting to be done with the whole thing because it just seemed easier to live a different way of life than to believe in some, some God who would let these things happen. I have struggled with that. And every single time what brought me back wasn't a good sermon. I didn't hear good sermons growing up, no offense to my preacher. I wasn't taught grace growing up. I wasn't. I was taught how to stay out of hell. That's how I was taught. Straight up. I was taught bad stuff. It wasn't a sermon that drew me back. And it wasn't the fancy church building. It wasn't a Bible camp. It wasn't a VBS. It wasn't any of those things that drew me back to Christ. None of those things. What drew me back was when I was 13 years old and I was working a job to help my family pay the bills and my dad lost his. And my mother was sick and my sisters had just been born twins. And I was waking up every morning taking care of them so my mom could rest and my dad could go to work. And I would see the stress and pain in my mom and dad's face. And I remembered one day coming home to a house that we finally had that we were renting. Hearing my mom and dad talk about how we were going to lose everything and have to move. And we didn't know where we would go at that time. And I pulled into the carport with my mom and dad and got out and saw on the step of the carport an envelope with cash overflowing. Overflowing. And it was from the church. This gray-headed, fundamentalist, legalistic, no-grace teaching church. I remember them. I remember generosity. Generosity brings me back. See, I don't know what you believe in, but here's the deal. If you're ever going to a hospital, you need to thank Jesus because it was Jesus' people who invented hospitals. Look it up, it's in history. If you've ever been part of a workforce development program, you need to thank Jesus because it was his people who developed workforce development programs for the people who were in hospital who needed to rehab, and so they gave them something to do and develop trade so they could get out. See, it's been generosity that has changed the world. It's not been right doctrine, even though that matters. It's not been fancy buildings, even though some people think that matters. What has changed lives is generosity. It's changed yours and it's changed mine. And that's why Jesus calls us to it. Because that stands as the witness. That young woman did not come to church this morning to thank us for how great the band sounds how fancy the building is. She never visited before. She came this morning to give thanks that she wasn't abandoned and that God's people gave. So see, I'm not the kind of preacher that has a problem teaching on giving, even though I've only done four and seven years and I'm going to keep reminding you of that. I just don't have a problem with it because I know what generosity has done for my life, how it's formed me because I've received it.
See, my son, the chances of my son, now I know it's possible, okay? I know it's possible, but the chances of my son being in mine and Allison's car, pulling into our driveway, hearing Allison and I talk about how we're going to lose everything we own, the chances of that happening seem, at least in my mind, I know it's very possible, but I don't know if the chances of that happening are there in my head. But, but it's possible. But here's my point. Because my son may never be in the car and see an envelope of cash overflowing on our front step and his life be changed by that, he better see his mom and dad give an envelope of cash. Because I need him to be formed by generosity too. That's why since he was little, every new toy he would get, he'd have to give one away. Every new video game he buys, he has to give one away. We don't want him being attached to his possessions. We need to raise him up so that the witness of faith is found in generosity because we can't outgive God and God gave us everything. He's not going to remember the sermons I preached. He's not even here. Downstairs. He's not going to remember how whatever I've done. He's gonna, what he's going to remember is what his growing up life cost him because his parents chose to live a life of generosity, if we choose that. See, because we're talking about the difference between affiliation and participation. See, generosity leads us away from the false comforts and life-breaking, death-dealing vulnerability that somehow convinces us we can affiliate with the church. See, the reality of it is, in a society seduced by power, position, and privilege, generosity is a heroic act of resistance. In a society seduced by false comforts and false security, generosity is a heroic act of resistance. In a society determined to push aside the weak, to marginalize the vulnerable, to exclude the stranger, generosity is a heroic act of protest. In a society dominated by fear, indifference, and violence, generosity is a heroic act of defiance because it refuses to let any outside power press in to a trust that you can't outgive the God who gave his life. Life with Christ is more than an affiliation. It's about participation. As I was thinking through this conversation, I was reminded of what a classmate said in one of my doctoral classes when I was studying in Philadelphia a couple of years back. He was a pastor of a large underground church in China. And he was visiting the U.S. only a couple of weeks at a time to get his doctorate because he had somehow grown to believe that if he could have a doctoral degree from America that it might give him a little, less, a little more credibility in a place where his particular uh, faith was not um, legal, his particular faith. And our class was a discussion on church leadership. And at one point, our class centered around this notion of discipleship. We were exploring ways to transition consumer-driven Christian cultures and churches to disciple cultures. And we were talking about programs, and everybody was talking about programs. And after a lengthy discussion, this pastor from China, this five-foot, two-inch friend from China stood up. And he took a few steps toward the center of the room, and at that point he turned like seven feet, two inches tall. And he interrupted and he said this, and I'll never forget it, but I want to quote him. 
in your Western church, you are called pastors because you have a degree. In my culture, we are called pastors because we sacrifice a lot. And at that point, I just wanted to resign. I mean, what do you do with that? When I heard that, my heart was broken because I knew he was right, but he wasn't done. He continued on, he said this. He said, in China, we do not talk about discipleship programs because to become a Christian is to become a disciple. No one just goes to church because it will cost you suffering. Sometimes we get arrested, tortured, and fined for our faith. But being arrested and tortured, we can take with the help of God. It is being fined that is the worst because being fined affects your family. And if your family isn't Christian, then it causes conflict and deep pain and may never lead them to Christ. And then he went on to say this. What is missing in the Western church is not discipleship. What the Western church needs is not more discipleship programs. What the Western church needs is suffering and sacrifice. Suffering and sacrifice, he said, creates disciples because obedience costs you something. See, I started thinking about the early church, and I can't disagree. See, in the early church, people didn't come to Christianity as an affiliation. It was a life of whole participation. It was not something they did. It was something they became. And generosity is a core, core part of what it means to be a Christ follower. No wonder why they invented hospitals and workforce development programs and orphanages and spared the world from losing libraries and universities and educational system, classical education as we know it in the Middle Ages. So a helpful way to talk about what participation looks like may be to talk about what it's not. See, participation is not a worship gathering with good music, a good sermon, a nice facility, and charismatic responses, and friendly people dressed in a particular way. That's settling for affiliation. That's not participation. Participation is something much deeper than that. It's not a big church or a small church. To think that that's what it's about is to settle for an affiliation. That's not participation. Participation is much deeper than that. It's not an organized social event where we all sit around and laugh and enjoy one another's company, even though that is beautiful and good. But to think that that's what Christianity is, is to settle for affiliation. That's not participation. It's much deeper than that. It's not a church for me that has programs for me that allows me to choose what I want to do and what I don't want to do based upon my own time and convenience. That's not, that's not Christianity. That's affiliation. Participation is much deeper than that. It's not a gathering where everybody knows my name like some scene from Cheers where I then am not on the hook for knowing everybody else's name. That's affiliation. It's not participation. Participation is something deeper than that. I think the pastor from China is right. To confess the name of Christ and embrace the description of Christian is to be called to a life of participation. And if it's the kind of Christian participation we're called to, it's going to cost us something. It's what we see in the story of Mark. It's what we see in the book of Acts. It's what we heard in the witness of the pastor in China. It's what we know that is true in Kenya. And it's what we see in the lives of the apostles. And it's what we see God doing in the person of Jesus. 
And the truth is, participation is exhausting. Can I, not, I mean, can, can I at least get one amen out of that, right? Like, we wear each other out. Like, we, it, it's exhausting to take Christ seriously. Like, think about it. Listen, we have 130 families in our church. That equates to 340 people. When you add the 50 college students who are becoming and are a part of our family, that means we're a church of 390 human beings. That's conservative numbers. And that's exhausting. Because that creates more need and burden that requires us to give more, doesn't it? I mean, think about it this way. Sunshine Ministry, a ministry of men and women, mostly women, we need more men, committed to caring for those loving through, living through difficult times, whether it be sickness or loss of a loved one or even hard financial crisis, that extraordinary ministry has provided 51 meals or gift cards since September, and that doesn't count the last month or month and a half, right, Donna, where we've provided meals every other day, right? Raise your hand if you've provided meals or gift cards over the last, who knows, you know, three months. That's exhausting. I mean, be Donna. Who's coordinating all that with all of us? Like, that's exhausting. It's Because exa- you got to work, and then you got to cook, and then you got to buy, and then you got to spend, and then you got to give. And the thing is, is that's called participation. To not do that is just affiliation. Because that's caring for each other. I know you don't have time. Neither did any of these people. We made time. Because it's participation. They worked, too. I mean, you think about the times that we've asked this church to give up our time to sit with people overnight while they were suffering. Raise your hand if you've ever done that in the last seven years. That's exhausting. But that's what participation is. That's not affiliation, that's participation. You think about the times that we've called this church many times to give. To give to disaster relief programs or to give to this need or to give to that need. And this church met it every time, whether it was to build an orphanage in Taraqua or to pay off debt so we could have the freedom to do more or whatever the case may be. This church met it every time. And I know that those of you who gave, that you gave and it cost you something, literally. And it was exhausting because sometimes I feel like we're coming to you all the time. But I don't apologize for that. The leadership, we can't apologize for that because Christ calls us to it. And that, but that's exhausting. And I just want to confess that it's exhausting and that I'm exhausted and that you're exhausted. And that we're all exhausted, but God is still good and He's still gracious and He can't outgive God and He'll give us the strength to do it. We just got to be willing to do it. But the difference is whether or not you want to have an affiliation or a participation, it's your call. I just don't want you walking away grieved. That's all. Because we've got, I've already told we've got things to do. <laughs> I mean, I showed that video last week to remind you that because of your faithfulness seven years ago, people you'll never meet are no longer homeless and alone. And it was because of you. It wasn't me. It wasn't anybody else. It was because this church started that movement. Now it's in Fredericksburg and Newport News, and I've told you all this stuff. Well, what's to say God can't do the rest? The thing is, we've got to decide. Go, sell, give, come, and follow. Our comfort. I want to close with one more story. See, the fact is, we're a household, and it takes tithes and offerings to keep a household afloat. We know this. 
Like any household, we have to take care of each other and take care of the needs. And we'll hit all that later. The good news is our Father takes care of us. So I want to close with this story because I don't want anybody to be misunderstood. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. And just so you know, those tiny coins were copper coins. They were called mites. They were the smallest Jewish currency at the time. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. So here's my point. Don't leave thinking generosity means who gives the most. It ain't that. Remember, God has an upside-down economy. We talked about that last week. It's who gives and feels it. That's what it comes down to. It's the sacrifice. See, this isn't a sermon on really giving. It's a sermon on sacrifice. When it comes to generosity, just start somewhere. But wherever you start, make sure you do so so that you feel it. That's all. Don't just give out of abundance. That's too easy. Feel it. Feel it with your time. Have to reorganize your schedule. Feel it with your goods. Have to do without. Feel it with your money. Have to make different financial decisions. Feel it. Because that's the widow's might stuff. But frankly, that's where the freedom comes. That's where the freedom comes, man. Just start somewhere. Because you can't outgive God. He's given. And every week we celebrate it. Every week we celebrate what God has given. And we remember that there is nothing we can do to outgive the one who gave his life. With the bread and the body, the cup and the blood, we know that there is nothing he won't give. That's why Jesus said, seek and you shall find. Knock and what? The door will be open. Ask and you will. Whoever asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. Whoever knocks, the door will be open. It doesn't mean we'll always get what we want. But here's what I've come to learn. If everyone is generous, no one will ever be lacking. And if everyone participates, no one will ever be alone. That's what the church is supposed to be. So you know what you've been giving. You know what you haven't been giving. You know, more importantly, what you're holding on to. The invitation to you today is to let go and to take hold of the abundant life Christ is offering. It's going to cost you something, but you signed up for it in your baptism. Trust him. He's trustworthy. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.